You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you remain standing and turn to Ruth chapter 2, it's the story of Ruth that we're able to see, well, the goodness of God. And I hope that uh, that's at least one of the things that you're going to kind of take home with you, uh, particularly out of this text today. So Ruth chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, who was in charge of the reapers, who is this young woman? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued for early morning until now, except for a short rest. Father, we pause in this moment, and, and just as Pastor Bobby has said, we, we give thanks and honor and glory for all that you have poured into our life. Father, forgive us for the times that we take credit for the things that you're doing. Father, forgive us for the times that we uh, look right past your blessing and we call it luck. Father, forgive us when we live our lives as though everything is by chance, when in fact, Father, you are in control. Father, forgive me when I get whiny, when I complain. Father, help us to see your grand plan. Help us to see your mercies and grace that are fresh and new every morning. And Father, be with those this morning that are especially far from you, either because of hurt or pain, because of bitterness. But Lord, maybe they're far from you because they've never expressed faith in you. And Lord, they're still spiritually dead. So Father, you know the hearts and needs of every person in this room and those that are watching online this morning. And we ask that you would move among their hearts through your powerful grace. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Sometimes I, I throw around words, uh, theological words, that uh, I don't take the time to define. And as I was uh, studying and preparing this week, it dawned on me that there's a couple of words I've been throwing around for years that I've never really taken the time to define that, that you probably know the definitions to, but I think it would help us all to kind of start at the same starting point. And the two words are sovereignty and providence. Now those, those two words uh, are words that, that we use quite often to talk about an attribute or a characteristic of God himself. Now all those two words, sovereignty, sovereign God, we find that word actually in scripture. So if, if we go through scripture, we will find the word sovereign used. We find it in the book of Acts. We find it in uh, the first letter Paul wrote to Timothy, where they're both talk where Timothy is being told by Paul that there's a sovereign God who is in control. Uh, 
In the book of Acts, as the gospel spreads beyond the confines of Jerusalem, we see it used again. But the word providence is not used anywhere in Scripture. That word, even in the English version, is not used anywhere from Genesis to Revelation, but yet we use that word a lot. And, and some people would think that sovereignty and providence are really just the same thing. It's just kind of like a synonym. They both really mean the same thing, that providence means sovereignty and sovereignty means providence. Well, that's not quite true. Even though providence, the word itself, is not used in the Bible, just like the word trinity is not used in the Bible, we find evidence of God's providence well, from cover to cover, especially in the stories of Ruth, the story of Joseph, um, the story of Esther, and in all through Scripture, we find the providence of God. So, so when we use these terms, what are we talking about? Well, let's start with sovereignty first. Sovereignty, if, to just give you a quick, easy definition, it's God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. Now, I'll tell you this, I relied quite a bit on a theologian by the name of John Piper, he wrote an entire book. It's about 700, almost 800 pages. And the title of that book is Providence. And I mean, it's a, it's a heavy read. And this is part of how he defines these terms. I think they're very good and easy to wrap our arms around. Sovereignty is God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. So when we think about God and we think about his characteristics, his attributes, who he is, we, we know that God is all-powerful. We know that the Bible tells us that, that God spoke and he created the universe. Psalm 33 says that, that he spoke and he hung the stars, the moon, the galaxies in place. Now, that kind of power is a little hard for us to wrap our arms around, but nonetheless, that's who God is. Now, now when God, with his power, speaks and he brings uh, together planets and galaxies, keep in mind that, that God creates something out of nothing. In other words, God didn't start with some kind of material that was already in the universe. He starts with nothing, and out of that nothing becomes something because the God that we serve and the God that we worship has the power to create something out of nothing. Isn't that powerful? It's amazing, isn't it? So God, and, and not only this, it's not like God had to labor. It's not like he had to like, just really work hard. God just simply speaks, and things that were nothing are now something. But not only something, they're organized. They they show his creative power from, from the, the smallest atom to, to, the, to the largest planet out in the solar system. What do we see over and over again but the power of God? We also know that, that God knows all things. So he knows exactly what you're thinking right now. He knows where your attention is. He knows what your motivations are. Uh, he, get this, he knows all of the possible outcomes of every decision you will make. He, of all the volumes of books, of all the information that can be known, God knows that and light years more. So, so this God that we worship, this God that, that, that we serve, not only can he make something out of nothing, but he knows everything there is to know. We also know that, that God is present everywhere all at the same time. Uh, this, is a little, this has always been a little hard for me to, to wrap my arms around, but there, there, are, there are churches and fellowships all over the world that are gathering this morning to worship. Now, now some of those churches are not known by the government because if they were, they'd be persecuted. They are in hidden places, in basements, and in garages, and in apartment complexes, and they're hidden because it's dangerous for them to meet like we do. 
And, and, and just as much as, as God is here and moving in, in this fellowship, he's halfway around the world at the same time moving in that fellowship. Isn't that amazing? That God is at work all over the universe, all over the globe, all at the same time. That I can sense his presence here, and, and, a, and a follower of Jesus halfway around the globe can sense his presence there. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about that God has the right and the power to do exactly what he wants to do in the way he wants to do it. He has the power and the ability to do that. So how does providence fit into this? Well, providence takes it another step. Providence accepts that God has the power and the right and the ability to do all that he decides to do. But what providence says is it gives us insight into how God does these things. It is through God's wisdom, it is through God's grace that God works out his sovereignty in real time, in real space, and get this, even in your life as an individual. So the providence of God is... Well, God's sovereignty being worked through his wisdom, through his presence, through his grace. Providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. What God sets out to do, he accomplishes. Now, we're going to see that in the life of Ruth. We've already begun to see this. If you remember last week, Naomi and Elimelech leave uh, Bethlehem because of a famine, and they go all the way down to Moab. And they're looking for food. They're looking to sustain their family. They're looking to take care of themselves because there was not enough food in Bethlehem. While they're there, they're able to find food. They're able to take care of themselves. While they're there, they have a family. They've got two boys. And, and given enough time, eventually Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. The two boys marry women who are Moabite women. They marry Ruth and Orpah. And then they stay there for 10 years plus, and then eventually, eventually, both of Naomi's sons also die. So here's what you have. You have Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, and they have no men in their life. They have no husbands. They've all died, and now they're in Moab. And, and I explained to you last week how serious the situation is, that in that culture, the women, the women determined that the women depended upon the men to be their providers. That was just how the culture was. So for these women, they're in a very precarious situation. That without these men in their life, it was going to be very hard for them, well, to be able to take care of themselves, to be able to feed themselves. So Naomi decides that the best thing that could happen would be for her to simply go back home. Because she's in a foreign land. She has no family there other than Orpah and Ruth. And she says to her two daughter-in-laws, y'all just go back home. In other words, there's no reason for you to stay with me. In fact, my life is going to be hard. There's no reason for your life to also be hard. Just, just go back home. Well, Orpah goes back home. Ruth makes one of the strongest commitments that we can find anywhere in the Old Testament. Ruth looks at Naomi, her mother-in-law, and he, she says to her, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And if, and if I do anything different than that, then let so much more happen to me, but I'm going to stick with you even until death. One of the most incredible statements of love and commitment that we can find anywhere in the Old Testament, right here in the book of Ruth. And so what happens is Naomi and Ruth make their way back to Bethlehem. And notice the last verse of chapter 1. It says that they get back to Bethlehem. It just so happens that they get back at exactly the time of the barley harvest. That would have been about mid-April. 
So they arrived back in Bethlehem at just the right time, well, just the right time to be able to find food. Now, some people would count that as simply happenstance, right? Coincidence? As a matter of fact, I, I have found that there are two groups of people in the world. Of course, in one re- in relationship, we talk about two groups of people, those who have put their faith in Jesus and found life in him and those who have not. But, but there's another two groups of people I want you to see. There are people who live their life and have been living their life for a long time who see the world as just a series of coincidences, happenstances, luck. Matter of fact, they live their life hoping for good luck and trying to stay away from bad luck. They, they don't see that there is a God in heaven who is directing their paths. They don't see a sovereign, providential God who is in control and, and guiding the universe to his ends. They don't see that at all. They're simply living each day just to get by. And they just hope that for today the they have some good luck. And if they have some bad luck, well, it didn't work out all that great. That all of life, all of life is just one big set of coincidences. But there really is no higher power, and if there is, he's not involved in the world at all. And then there's a second group of people who see the world as being guided and being controlled by something. Now, they may not name God as the one who's in control, but they believe that there's something, and they, they may refer to it as fate, or they may refer to it as whatever God they believe in, but they, they have this idea that, that, the, that the universe and all this happening is, is moving in the direction of something that wills it to be so. Now, for me, I believe that to be the creator of the universe. I believe that to be God himself. I believe that to be the Godhead Trinity. But I believe that everyone in this room, every person in this room fits in one of those two categories. For some of you, you're just getting by. And as you look across your life, you go, man, I was really lucky there. Man, the circumstances worked out for me there. But you don't see God at work at all. And then for some of you, when you look back, you go, man, if it, weren't, if it were not for God there, if it were not for God here, if it were not for God for this, if it were not for God in this circumstance, I don't know what would have happened. And God has been knitting my life together, and he's been working things out in ways that I, has, has blown my mind. And God has been working in my life in the small things and in the big things. Does that describe you? Maybe you've been longing for a long time for God to reveal himself. God, if you'll just show me a miracle, God, if you'll just answer this prayer, then I'll believe in you. Could it be that God's in heaven going, I have revealed myself 10,000 times over, and yet you still haven't believed? Let's take a look at the life of Ruth, and let's see how God's providence is going to be worked out in the life of this Moabite woman. So pick it back up in verse 1. Let's see what's happening in the story. So now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. So what is happening here? Well, it's almost like the author's letting the cat out of the bag. So the narrator, what he's doing is, is he's giving us a little preview because I am convinced that as we walk through this story, we're going to see that, that the way this works out, Ruth didn't just decide one morning that she's going to go look up Boaz. And, and as we walk through this story, we're going to see God's providential hand working in the background. Notice verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears. So here you have two widowed women. They've made their way back to Bethlehem. This is Naomi's hometown. 
Now, Ruth is from Moab, and she, not only is she a Moabitess, but she looks like a Moabitess. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. And when they got back to town, if you remember in chapter 1, Naomi says to the crowd that gathers who, who are welcoming Naomi back, look, Naomi's come back, but man, Naomi doesn't look like the same Naomi that left. And they hear the story that her husband and her two sons have died, and And Naomi says to the crowd, look, I went away, Naomi. I went away full, but I have come back empty. Just call me Mara. Call me bitter because God has dealt harshly with me. These two women now are back in Bethlehem, and because they have no husbands, they are going to have to find some way to survive on their own. And the way that they're going to have to do that is by gleaning in the fields. What does that mean? Well, What it means is that Ruth is going to have to enter into a field during this harvest time. And as they're harvesting barley, some of that barley is going to fall to the ground. Some of the barley, not all the barley is going to be gathered. And what will happen is, as people that are poor, people with tattered clothes, people, people who have no, maybe no homes are going to come into the fields and they're going to glean behind the harvesters and pick up whatever's left. Within the Israelite law, God had made provision for those who were poor. And and God said to the nation of Israel, when you plant these fields and when you go to harvest them, don't harvest all the corners. Don't harvest 100% of the field. Leave some of the corners behind for those who are poor, for those widows who need something to eat. In other words, don't take everything. Leave some behind. Well, Ruth, in humility, is going to have to go out into the field and she's going to have to find enough food for her and Naomi to eat. And the way she's going to do that is she's going to enter a field and hope that the owner of that field is going to be gracious enough to let her glean because not everybody would do that. Not every, not every Israelite would allow people to do this. Some people were just greedy, just like people are greedy today. So Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, go and enter the field so that we can be able to eat. Notice what happens next. In verse, uh, pick it up in verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in a field after the reapers. Now notice this phrase, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So of all the fields that Ruth could have entered, and there were many, the fields are full of people harvesting, and they're harvesting barley. And barley, barley was known as a, as a, as a food predominantly for animals. But you could, you could make barley cakes out of this. You could take the barley and make a cake out of it. But predominantly, anybody who ate barley was poor. So here's Ruth in her poverty, entering the field to glean. And of all the fields that she could have entered, it says here that she happened upon the field of Boaz. An interesting thing in the Hebrew language, you don't see it in your English translation, but in the Hebrew behind this English text, there's a really interesting phrase there. Where you see, it says, and she happened to come. In the Hebrew, it says this, if I translate it into English. Here's what it says. She chanced upon a chance. In other words, the Hebrew language kind of doubles down on this idea of chance. Now, I believe the author is including this to get our attention. I think the author wants us to see this because this is key to this entire story. Could it be that Ruth just happens to find some good luck and enters into a field of a man who we're going to find out becomes a tremendous blessing to her? Well, let's find out. So she enters this field, 
And then eventually Boaz, the owner of the field, comes, and he looks at the field, and he recognizes all of his workers except for one. There's one female out there among those who are gleaning. Now, get this picture. Here's a field. The harvesters that are working for the farmer, the owner, Boaz, they're out there gleaning. They're out there gathering in the harvest. They are hired help. But also you see these other people out in the field with tattered clothes, maybe, maybe a little dirty, maybe crawling around on the ground. And what they're doing is they are poor and they are gleaning. So when, so when Boaz looks at the field, he recognizes his servants. He recognizes his workers. He even recognizes some of the people who are gleaning, but there's one woman who stands out. And he asks his lead servant, who is that woman? Who is, who is that woman? And he says, this is a Moabite woman. This is the woman that came back with Naomi. Well, in that moment, Boaz hears the story of all that has been going on with Naomi, Ruth, and it just so happens that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. Now, whether he had heard part of the story or he's hearing it all right now, the fact is, I want you to notice how Boaz responds in this situation. So Boaz, here's the story, and this is what he says. Verse, well, verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Not only do we find out that, that in this culture, a husband was someone who provided for his family, but we also find out that a husband is someone who protects his family. And, and Naomi and Ruth are without both provision and protection. And notice this, Boaz says something very interesting here. He says, I've already spoken to my men to not lay a hand on you. Now what's going on here? Could it be that a woman who's a foreigner, a woman who is poor, could it be that there would be men in that time, in that day that would take advantage of women in that situation? Absolutely. Could it be that in the nation of Israel, there would be men who would take advantage of a woman who's down on her luck and struggling? Absolutely. So Boaz steps in and he says, Ruth, you stay in my field. You glean with my people. You stay with my harvesters. I've told my young men to keep an eye out for you and not to touch you. Not only that, look at this. He says, verse 9, he says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. So here we have Boaz breaking down cultural barriers. The women would not go and drink water with the men. That just wasn't culturally acceptable. But Boaz throws all that out the window because in that moment, being led by God through generosity, he tells Ruth that she's going to be taken care of, and not just be taken care of, but I'm talking about being blessed, being watched out for. He says, now that is verse 10, this is her response. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Now this tells me clearly that Ruth does not know who Boaz is. Even though we have that first verse in chapter 2 where you've got the narrator telling us, as the story plays itself out, Ruth has found herself in the very field of a relative named Boaz. Now, I'm not going to give the whole story away, but Boaz is going to play a much bigger role in this story than just providing food and care, provision and protection for Ruth and Naomi. Ruth asked a very good question. Why would you take any notice of me? I'm a foreigner. 
not only did, did Ruth not fit in, she looked like she didn't fit in. The way she would dress, the way she carried herself was different than the Israelite women. And so therefore, therefore, she's like, why in the world would you show me such kindness? I want you to hear Boaz's response. Verse 11, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, who's, who, under whose wings you have to come to take refuge. Listen to that response. Boaz says to Ruth, listen, the reason that I'm being a blessing to you is because you've been a blessing to Naomi. You see, Ruth had, had no reason, she had no benefit in staying with Naomi. In fact, it would have been a lot easier for Ruth to have followed Orpah's lead and just simply go back to her homeland. To simply go back to her family, she could have remarried, she could have started another family, she could have had all the provisions she needed. In her land, in Moab, she would have been taken care of. It would go, I will go, your people will be my people, your God will be, who's her mother-in-law, who couldn't even take care of herself. It was insane. There was no reason for her to do this. So when Boaz hears the story, he's overwhelmed. But notice that behind the scenes here, the only way that this ever could have worked out is if that if Ruth had chosen another field, if Ruth had chosen any other field except this random field that she picked, how would things have turned out? But yet, in that moment of chance, we see the hand of God, controlling, guiding, even guiding Ruth's footsteps to the very field that God wanted her to glean in. Do you see that? Well, if that's the case, if that's the case, if, if, if God guided Ruth's very footsteps to that very field, even though Ruth in that moment thinks she's just choosing a random field, but in that moment, God is at work, could it possibly be because God does not change, that's one of his characteristics, could it be that that you may have overlooked some things in your life? Could it be that the path that God has guided you on has been the very path that he's called you to walk? I mean, you were thinking, you were thinking that this path couldn't possibly be God's will, right? I mean, it's hard, it's difficult, maybe it includes sickness. This couldn't possibly be, or could it? Could this be, could, could the path you're walking be the very path that God has called you to walk? Could it be that, that God is right there in that moment guiding your footsteps, even in the smallest of choices? With Ruth, what field am I going to glean from today? In the smallest of choices, God at work. He says to, to Ruth, you have been a blessing to Naomi, and I want to be a blessing to you. I, I think when we read that, and there's some other places in the Old Testament that we could look at and go, okay, so if, if, if I be good to people, then I'm going to get something good from God. I mean, it stands to reason, because that's kind of what we're seeing. Even Boaz says, God is repaying you for the goodness you have done. But I think we have to be careful when our motivation to love and our motivation to help and our motivation to serve is simply to get something from God. I think, I think we're becoming rather self-centered at that point. Ruth's not thinking about any of that. Boaz is not thinking about that. He's just simply saying, I want to do something good for you because you've done something good for, any, for others. I know this to be true, though. 
I know that if you are mean and horrible to other people, I think you do separate yourself from the blessings of God, and then you've placed yourself, well, under the judgment of God. So one thing I'm certain of is that if you are mistreating people, you are going to pull yourself out of a place where God's going to pour blessings on you, and in fact, God's going to bring discipline. Boaz says to her, you have done all this good to Naomi, and I'm doing this to you, doing this for you because of that. Ruth cannot believe the generosity that she is experiencing here. Look at verse 14, it continues. And at mealtime, Boaz said, come here and eat with me. In other words, he invites her to his table. She eats food with Boaz. He gives her the leftovers. She takes it home. Not only that, all of the food that she's been able to glean. Eventually, eventually Boaz just tells his reapers, his harvesters, just to hand food to, to Ruth, just to give it to her. Pick it up in verse 17. Notice what happens here. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and there was about an ephah of barley. That's about close to a bushel of barley, quite a bit of food. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food had been left over after being satisfied. So here's Ruth. Now get this. So here's Ruth carrying a massive amount of food back to Naomi. Understand that, that Naomi, neither Naomi nor Ruth would have ever expected this much of food to have been gleaned in one day. They're, they're, this, this is so far beyond what would have been expected by a, a couple, a family who is impoverished. This is so much more food than would have ever been expected. So when she shows back up at Naomi's with all of this food, look at verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Again, in the story, as we walk through the story, they are not looking for Boaz. That was something that God worked out. Where did you work today? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Naomi sees this huge amount of food, even the food that was served at the table that Ruth then shares with Naomi. And Naomi is flabbergasted. She's overwhelmed. And she immediately, in that moment, realizes that somebody has been a blessing to their home. There's no other way to describe it. The reality is, is that Naomi, the same Naomi who, who said to her friends, maybe weeks previous to this when they arrived, she said, don't, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for I am bitter. And not only that, she said, I went away full and I've come back empty. And I said last week that that in, in her pain and in her brokenness, she didn't even see the fact that Ruth had made such a commitment to her, that, that in her pain and in her brokenness, she didn't see the blessing that Ruth was going to be even in that moment, but now especially notice the blessing that God has provided even to Naomi through Ruth and that blessing that Boaz has poured into Ruth's life. This amazing amount of food. Man, somebody's been a blessing to us. Notice her words. Somebody's been a blessing. Someone has blessed us, given the idea that God is at work. Notice this, what she says. Verse, uh, it's been in verse 19. The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaking the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the, the man, this man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours. One of our redeemers. 
That is a very, very important phrase. We will get into that next week. So you got to come back to hear how that works out. But let me just say, to give you a little preview, Boaz is going to have far more of an impact in the life of Ruth and Naomi than just providing food. That in fact, the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of Messiah, is connected all the way back to the field that Ruth chose to glean in. Did you get that? I'm still wrestling with that. That the birth of Messiah, birth of God with flesh on, goes all the way back to a single moment in time where Ruth is looking for a field to glean in, and she goes into a field, and the Bible says, by chance, goes into a field. And that decision, that moment, those footsteps guided by God is eventually going to lead to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Well, now, wait a minute. Are 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 we thinking here for a moment that that those decisions, small decisions can have such great impact that, that God can be working in the small details of our life and that 100 years from now, those small details can have some kind of tremendous impact on my family, my community, my culture, my city. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But only if, only if we quit counting things as luck and chance and begin honoring God with the work he's doing in our life right now. Stop calling the providence of God luck. Stop calling the work of God in your life happenstance. Stop referring to God as the big guy upstairs who may throw something good at my life. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and he's in control of your life right now. Sometimes wrestling with the sovereignty of God, I I went back to this illustration. I wish I could tell you where I got it from, but I got it from somewhere, back somewhere in time. I don't know where, but it really helped me. So this, this idea of God's power and control and how he's guiding things. On the one hand, we can go too far with that where, where God is just, everything is set and we're just a bunch of puppets walking through the universe and we really have no ability or no say in anything. That's one extreme. The other extreme is that that God is off distant somewhere. The world is just wound up by God and it's just doing its own thing and God is not actively involved in anything today. That's equally wrong. Let me me give you an illustration that's really helped me with sovereignty and providence. So I'm not a a very good chess player. As a matter of fact, I'm a horrible chess player. Any, Any of my kids can beat me at chess. I'm terrible at it. So... Imagine me sitting down in a chess match with a professional. Someone, you saw these, these men and women on TV who go to these big chess championships. They've been playing chess for years, and they're very, very bright and even genius level as far as chess goes. And there's all these possibilities on that chess board of, of moving your, your pawns to, to win the game. And these men and women have been playing for years and years and years, and they know all these different outcomes and all these different strategies in playing chess. Well, imagine I'm sitting down. I'm not even an amateur. I can't even get to that level. Let's just say that I'm sitting down, I'm an amateur, and I've got this professional chess player sitting across from me at the chess table. We start playing the game. Well, on my side of the table, on my side of the chess game, you know what I'm doing? I'm making decisions. I'm choosing to move this particular knight or this particular pawn to this particular part of the board. And my desire is to, is to win the game, right? 
Well, on the other side of that board is a professional chess player. He knows exactly what moves I'm going to make. He knows exactly how I'm playing the game. And he's already got 14 counter moves ahead of me to make sure that that game ends up the way he wants it. And guess what that is? He's going to win. It's going to be checkmate. No, no, no doubt about it, he's going to win. But yet, in that game, I'm making my own choices. Well, as poor an illustration as that is, let me, let me expand that out. Here we are in this life that we're in, that God has given us. And, and the amazing thing is, we're sitting, we're sitting across from God, and, and we're doing life, and I'm, I'm making choices, just like Ruth made the choice to enter a field, just like Naomi made the choice to go back to Bethlehem. But in those choices, as, as we are making them, God is behind the scenes and he is directing our paths, directing even our footsteps, even in the smallest of things. And make no mistake about it, this thing is going to end up exactly the way a sovereign God sees fit to end it. I have a day in which I will die. It's already set out in the man, mind of God. It's been given to me a, a matter of time to live and not one doctor, not one medication is going gonna, is gonna to prevent that day from coming. But I am, at, I am at perfect rest about that day because I know that day is settled in the mind of, mind of God. And I also know that I'm his son. And I also know that I've been redeemed. And I also know that the promises of God say to me that when that day comes, I'll be ushered into his presence and there I will be forever, Period. So let's think a little bit about what this means for us. Sovereignty and providence. Big terms, big things to wrap our arms around. What does that mean for us today where we live? First of all, I want you to understand, let's, let's put our feet into the shoes of, of Ruth for just a moment. She said that she was an unworthy foreigner. Guess what? We are all unworthy foreigners. Every single one of us. When I came to faith in Christ at age 16, prior to that, Here's how the Bible described me. And if you're lost this morning, you never put your faith in Jesus, this is how the Bible describes you. First of all, you're an outsider in relation to the kingdom of God. The Bible describes you as an alien, not an alien from another planet, but alienated from the love of God, alienated from the kingdom of God, which means you are on the outside. There is a reason why you don't have a clear understanding of all that I'm saying this morning. It's because the Bible says you are spiritually dead, and spiritually dead things cannot bring life to themselves. You got to have something from the outside that gives you life. So I was a foreigner. I was on the outside, just like Ruth. I didn't deserve the grace of God. I didn't deserve his mercy. Yet God's mercy and grace found me. On March 22nd, 1987, I finally surrendered my life to Christ. And leading up to that, I had all kinds of people who were, who were showing me what God's love was like. I had a, a friend at school who was on fire for Christ, and he lived differently than everyone else on my school campus. And I kept watching him, and I kept seeing that he was different than me. There's something he had. I had church attendance. He had Jesus. I had a claim to religion. He had the gospel. I had some kind of idea that showing up on Sunday morning was going to fix all my problems. He had the real deal. It changed him from the inside out, and I could see the difference. I was an outsider. And when I finally surrendered to that grace, I spent the rest of my life just like Ruth going, God, why would you give me such? 
knowing what a failure I am, knowing what the mistakes that I made, why would you give me the family that I've got? Why would you give me the kids that I've got? Why would you give me the home? Why would you give me the ministry? Why would you do this? And it's simply answered the same way every time I ask. It's out of my good grace, out of God's good grace and his sovereignty and his providence, sovereignty and his providence. It's out of that. And he's a good father that he's given me all this. Secondly, I know a lot of you are looking for God's will. You're trying to discern God's will in this season in your life. You're trying to, you're trying to figure out what is it, what is God is asking me to do? How, what, what is God asking me to do in this situation? Well, if you're looking for God's will, I've got an answer for you. Get to work. <laughs> it might not have been the answer you're looking for, but notice Ruth. Ruth and Naomi could have just stayed at home. They could have just stayed at home and said, well, somebody's going to provide something. God's will is somehow going to show up. God's will is going to play out no matter what. I'm just going to sit here and wait on it. No, what does Ruth do? Ruth leaves the house. She goes out and does something that requires humility. She goes out and she enters the field because at the end of the day, they got to eat. At the end of the day, they got to have food. The amazing thing about God's will is, is it's not going to come through a burning bush. If you're waiting for a burning bush, stop looking for that. If you're looking for a vision from heaven, stop. God has already given you his full and complete will. You want your burning bush? It's right here. God has revealed his will to you. And what he's asking you to do is put your hand to the plow. Follower of Jesus, put your hand to the plow. And when you do, when you start serving in God's kingdom, serving other people, that God begins to reveal as you walk that journey, he just begins to pour more and more and more clarity out as to what he's asking you to do, what he's calling you to do. We got all kinds of plows around here that need somebody to put a hand to. This afternoon at 4 p.m., we're going out to prayer walk. That'd be a great place to start. Kelly's got all kinds of plows over in that other building. She needs some hands to put to those plows. There's a lot of kingdom work all around you. Maybe putting our hand to that plow is the first step in understanding what God is calling you to do. I, I read this quote, I think it's appropriate when it comes to the will of God. Dr. Martin Luther King, we celebrate his life this week. Listen to this quote from him. He says, quote, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may, end quote. Pretty powerful, pretty clear, pretty straightforward. Next thing I want us to consider is that God works through other people, that, that God is revealing himself and doing incredible works, and he often does that through other people. Boaz goes far and beyond anything that anyone would have imagined in that day to help this foreign woman take care of herself. One of the things that's concerned me since uh, COVID-19 and the shutdowns and all that we experienced there is there's a lot of people who prior to COVID were, were plugged into a local church and they were doing life. It was just part of their routine. They were doing life among a church. And then whatever circumstances drove them to kind of isolate off during that covid pandemic and the height of that and the shutdown, and they closed off, and, and now they've, they've become a loner in their faith. And I've had people tell me, well, well, Pastor, I, I don't really need to come over there. I can do my own thing. I can just stay at home. And here's, here's my problem with this. 
is that Christ has never called you to live out your faith in isolation. He has called you to do it in the ecclesia, the called out ones, to do life together. And here's the, here's the thing that bothers me, is that when you isolate yourself, it's not uncommon that you lose the direction and the will of God in your life. You, you kind of get confused and you lose that joy. You know why that is? It's because God works through other people to pour blessings into your life. A kind word, a smile, a hug, coming by and providing a meal, putting her arm around somebody and saying, let me pray for you. God works through other people. If you've become a loner, you may be isolating yourself from the very work that God is doing in your life. You may have separated yourself from the very work that God is doing. You should be surprised when you don't see it. Finally, God's pathway includes suffering. So we've got to accept that. Ruth has to go out into the field and she has to labor. And it's out in the field, among the work, among the sweat, among the bugs, among the other people staring at her, among the other people who may actually mistreat her, She's got to go out there in that field and do the work and sweat and, 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 and humble herself. She's got to go out there and do that. And it's, and it's through that suffering that God begins to move powerfully. Listen, if, if you're always scared to death of suffering, if, you, if you've got this fear of just suffering anything, then it may be that you're isolating yourself from the very providence of God. I go back to where I started. Are you the person who says everything is about luck, whether it be good or bad? Are you the person who says, no, there is a holy, sovereign, powerful God in control? If that describes you, let me ask you, are you trusting him in this valley, this season that you're in? Are you trusting him there that every decision, every step you're making, every hardship you're facing, are you trusting that same God who's in control? Father in heaven, your goodness and your grace is sufficient. Your mercy and love is fresh and new every morning. And Father, I know that for everyone in the room, they have different valleys they're walking through and different struggles they're facing. And Father, I pray that we would not run towards chance, but we would run towards you, whether that be for salvation, to come from death and the life, or rather, or rather, Father, just to be sustained in this season of life that we're in, that every step, every decision, while we're making them, Lord, you are working all things out. All things are being worked out for your glory and our good. May we trust in that reality this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, Hyde